of Problem Busters. And of course, I'm here with my esteemed colleague, Jonathan. Good evening. Good evening, Ollie. How are you? I'm all right, mate. And yourself? I'm good, thanks. As Looks always. Like we might... <laughs> it's also good to be getting more and more spring, isn't it? Yeah. I, just... I actually get woken up by the light. And, uh, and that's very Northern Hemisphere for the listeners down under. The days are long. So today I'd like to introduce to you all Dave Martin and uh, Dave's here to talk to us about, well Dave's actually a product executive coach with Right to Left and he's here to talk to us about learning to lead. Welcome Dave. Yeah, hi there. Thanks for having us uh, on the show. You're welcome. You're welcome. It's great to have you here, although remotely and in a safely distanced way. So we usually start off with a bit about you and a bit of your background. And I think that if you could insert here the story about the most recent startup and exit, I think that's just an interesting story for folks as well. So take it away. Yeah, sure, no problem. That's great. Oh, background. Well, I suppose it's worth mentioning way back when I was an engineer back in days of C++. So that's where I started my career. For the last couple of decades, I'd say I'm, uh, I've been in product leadership, probably before it was called product and leading large teams deliver value through technology for organizations. And in the, probably the last 15 years or so, it's mainly been in roles of transformation, helping organizations typically become what we now call product-led and uh, find a way to achieve product-led growth. Right now, I run my own boutique coaching practice where we focus on helping product leaders and CEOs of typically of VC-backed startups make great product decisions and build better products. But before that, my last permanent job would have been with Tez Global. Some people might know as Times Education Supplement, which you know, 100 years before was a newspaper printed part of the Times product. But with my time with them, we whilst we did have a, a printed publication still, very much smaller than it once was, main focus by a long way was online products both for schools and for teachers bringing teachers together so they could share class plans online and help each other all over the world and helping schools with managing the process of recruitment and finding the right teachers for the right roles that role i was brought in and joined them when they were private equity owned we spent My role was to help them move from being a transaction-based business to a subscription-based business. So I had to lead some considerable change. And we successfully, two years later after that, sold the company with the majority of the revenues being subscription-based. And that's when I uh, took a break and uh, decided coaching was what I wanted to do. So why coaching? That's got to be the question, right? Because the little that I know of folks in your line of work at that stage in your career, the phone would have been ringing, right? And some of it would have been Silicon Valley, some would have been closer to home, but it would have been ringing. So why coaching? Yeah, definitely a great question. You're right. You know, I've spent some time working over in the Bay Area and I have had and did have quite a few interested opportunities to consider. But uh, the reality was I had the opportunity to have a little break, which was the first time probably in my entire career. And I thought about the situation of what I really enjoyed the most. What really did I get the buzz from? And I realized that the most fun job I ever had where I got the most satisfaction was actually my first job back when I was 16. And then I taught windsurfing and sailing and I loved it. It was great fun. And part of me wondered whether it was great fun because, well, I was doing what I loved, sailing and windsurfing all day long. What's not to love about that? Although it was in England, so some of it was cold and rainy. So maybe it wasn't all great fun. But what I really enjoyed was watching individuals grow and prosper. You know, you could explain somebody who'd never sold a dinghy in their life. And, you know, three hours later, they're having the fun, great fun on their own. And they're controlling a boat and doing what they've got to do in control of it and having fun. 
and you've taught them something. I realized that the part I really liked was helping people grow and reach their ambition. And as a chief product officer at Tez, the part I really loved more than anything was watching my own direct report grow, leading those guys so they grow, grew and empowering them to reach whatever their ambitions were. Normally it'd be aligned with the organization, but not always. So that led me to go, well, what job, What? how can I do that full time? And coaching is the answer. It allows me to help individuals and companies grow. It helps me to help people on their journeys. And it uses my experience from the last two decades to do that. So here we are. Fair enough too. Fair enough too. So I guess onto the problem of the day then. What we thought we could focus on is learning to lead. Because this is something that's topical to both Jonathan and I. And Jonathan's just, his team's sort of reaching the half dozen. And mine's got a little bit past that now. And that is a whole new ball game, isn't it? And then beyond learning to lead a team comes learning to lead leaders and then coach those leaders, right? And it seems to me there aren't enough great leaders in the world. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think the challenge is quite often in, in today's sort of how work is functioned. We're very much, we develop our skill set and are very much judged as individual contributors. You know, we've all got our smart targets and we're going to, we're working towards our KPIs and everything's very measurable. And it's about how we contribute as individuals, you know, and as you become an expert and a functional, very strong in a particular functional discipline, the journey, the leadership is you reach a point where that's the only way you can continue to grow your income and grow your impact. You want to have a larger impact. And so you have that kind of fork in your career of, do you move into management and leadership or do you continue? Uh, down the, the expert individual contributor. And there aren't all that many companies that support the one option as a career path. There are some, most notably some of those are the big tech firms. For many of us, the only option really, if we want to continue specifically to grow our income, which is obviously a large motivator for going to work in the first place, it means we've got to go down the management leadership role. But actually, I think gets confused because we don't realize that we've got to relearn what our job is in order to be leaders. It's no longer being an individual contributor. We're out of our comfort zones and we've got new skills to learn and new capabilities. We've got to let go of some of the stuff that we're really strong at and let our, let our teams and our staff do those things instead. And that can be a very scary thing because you're accountable for it. Yeah, just focusing on that. And then I think it's probably time to hand the mic to you for a moment, Jonathan. I just get so fired up. (laughs) So thinking about that transition from doing to leading, what are some of the major mistakes and sort of common gotchas that you've observed over the years? I see some common frustrations and challenges, and they're probably the top three are probably a fair teams are working on the wrong things or doing it the wrong way. So a fear of that overwhelming workload and that comes from when the leader is still trying to be a contributor as well as being a leader which in effect means they're doing somebody else's work so they end up with overwhelming workload and then the top three will be will be failing communication where if communication isn't working as well as they hoped and they're having to the message isn't landing and that's that's hard one because you don't always realize that's happening at the beginning you think you've communicated well, but it turns out that what everybody heard wasn't what you said. So I think they're probably the top three. Okay, that's quite interesting, actually, because some of the things you've mentioned, I've personally experienced on that sort of transition from sort of doing to leading. So outside of those, well, I guess it incorporates those three main mistakes that you see. What do you believe are the components of being sort of a great leader? I think first, there's too much pressure on that word. I mean, part of that question is probably worth challenging. We, we talk about being great leaders and we think of great leaders and we've all probably got people in our mind when we say that great leader. I mean, we're not all going to be great charismatic leaders who are going to change the world. But what we can all be capable of is leading teams and helping individuals grow and achieving our business goals. So what does it take to be a competent leader is probably the the right way to think about it. And that takes a bit of pressure off 
because then immediately people aren't feeling like, oh my God, to be Winston Churchill, gives me permission to not be the very, very best. And that's important. As it turns out, one of the most important things in being a very competent leader is being vulnerable, being open to the fact that you don't know everything, being accepting that you might make some decisions that are wrong and letting the people you're leading know that. And I think that's really important. Sometimes we, when people first start on their journey as a leadership, they feel like they've got to kind of protect their teams and they're like some sort of military leader who's got to always have the right answer. And this is very wrong. The best leaders are quite the opposite. So it's about that to be a really good, competent leader, you need to set clear direction. You need to be vulnerable and accept that you don't know everything and empower your teams to fill those gaps in for you. And you probably most importantly, as you're setting that clear direction, you've got to find your own signature so that you can do it authentically. Nobody, at the end of the day, you aren't a leader unless people will follow you. You're not a leader just because your job title says so. There are plenty of great leaders in business, the ones that influence all the decisions and people are following, but they don't actually have the job title to go with it. The job title doesn't make you a leader. The fact people want to follow you makes you a leader. Otherwise, you're a manager. And that's important to recognize the difference. You've got to be authentic. Otherwise, people pick up on you know, if you're fake and false, you know, nobody follows that. So you have to have authenticity. And it takes some, it typically takes some time for, as an individual, for you to find that leadership signature that is authentic because you're new to it and you don't know exactly what that's going to look like until you try. Does that answer the question? Does that help? Yeah, yeah. Because you see a lot of, I guess, articles online and people giving out seminars and then being a great leader. Well, you know, how do you do it? And these are the things that you must do and, and things like that. And I think saying, sort of challenging it and saying what makes a competent leader is and the points you brought up, like being vulnerable and things that are knowing that you're going to make mistakes and being able to accept it and let people know. I think that those are really, really great points and really good things to consider. With that, with leadership, what do you believe also makes a competent coach? When you're thinking about leaders of leaders which is the time when when the job requires more coaching than telling without a doubt where you're having to support i think there's a really nice model well, i used to be a consultant so i always think about models and quadrants i can't help myself if there isn't a two by two in the conversation we, it's not right surely <laughs> uh, and the product manager in me wants to cover it in post-its as well so <laughs> this is a safe place Dave it's all right <laughs> so if we think about that you know there's a really great model called situational leadership and I've definitely helped coach leaders you know who used to work for me VPs of product and VPs of data who used to report to me when I was in C-suite roles with this model and it's helped them so maybe sharing that will help your listeners and, and the model is really simple the first box is about telling being clear when you've got to tell people. Normally, that's where you have, as a leader, some non-negotiables. Some things you aren't willing to negotiate on. They are going to be this way, or they have to be this way, whatever it is. It might be something to do with quality. It might be core principles that you care about for your culture. It might simply be that things have got to be done X, Y, Z in a particular way. And that's that. You know, quite often, there's some contractual reason for it. So telling the non-negotiables is really important. The next box up and telling is important also when you're helping people with new tasks and new roles when they're very new to it and they need to be told then as well because otherwise they aren't prepared. The next box up is supporting and supporting it's different to coaching and it's different to tell. Supporting is where you're helping the individual with the task, helping them with their problem. And if we go back to my sailing and we talked about the beginning, you know, when you used to teach somebody to sail, you would quite often sit at the back of the boat with your hand on the rudder on the tiller with them with the person learning and you both would have your hand on the tiller at once you're supporting you're there you're helping you're showing that's that's supporting you need to recognize with the people you're leading and your teams when you need to support and when you need to stop supporting and when you stop supporting is when you move into coaching and coaching in its true form and not all coaches follow this but you know in its truest form coaching is questioning and helping the individual work it out for themselves you're not giving them the answer but you're asking them questions to help them find the answer 
So you are guiding, but not telling and not supporting. And with your teams, you've got to coach them at some point so they can start learning from themselves and they get in the habit of doing it on their own. And then finally, in the this, this two by two, is the final box is delegating. Delegating is where I'm able to just give you the task, make it clear what the expectation is, and you're going to go away and do it all on your own and come back when it's done. And that delegating, that's when your person is finally empowered. And what's important to recognize as a leader is depending on the situation, which is why it's called a situation model, you may have to diet with an individual, be switch which box you're in. If it's some new challenge for the team and for the individual and something they've never done before, you might have to tell. You might have to support or you might have to coach them. Or it might be something they're very comfortable with and you can delegate. So it's not that an individual is in one of the boxes. It depends on the situation. And as a leader, you've got to be aware when you need to be in the right place to give them the best support for them to grow and be accomplished or whatever it is you're asking them to do. And too often, I think the more immature leader gets stuck in one of those boxes with an individual and never get never realizes they've got to swap what mode they're in. You can't just stay in the same mode all the time. So hopefully that was helpful. Hopefully it made some sense. Mm, definitely. definitely did. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder also if if we kind of tend to one of these because of our persona. And I don't say personality, but I mean the persona that we have at work. So, for example, I might like to be everybody's friend. And that might lead to me supporting a lot, but perhaps not delegating enough or perhaps delegating too much and not coaching. So, yeah, there's a lot for me to reflect on in that. Yeah, and, and that's a really good point as well. I mean, when you're, when you're thinking about what your job is as a leader in a business, you know, it's to get the most out of your team just for it to run and all be happy. And sometimes getting the most out of the team is, does mean you've got to put them in uncomfortable situations. It does mean you've got to let go at times and not support, even though it's going to be scary for that person to do that thing. You've got to let them have a go at it, you know, just like teaching somebody to sail. The time you get off the boat and set them off on their own, they can be a little nervous about it because they've never been in charge of a boat before on their own. It's exactly the same with uh, leadership in the organization. You've got to make sure you're pushing people outside of their comfort zones at times as well, but in a controlled and where possible, very safe manner that's where your culture i think is so important where and as a leader you can't control culture isn't just you but you do get to set it and influence it very heavily and that you now if you create a culture that feels a safe space for people to make mistakes then they'll push themselves out of the comfort zone more frequently and that obviously means you end up with a more performant team and at the end of the day in business that's that's kind of your job to have the high performance team Oh, I thought Oli was about to say something. I'm always um, about to say something, mate, but I think it's your turn. <laughs> yeah. So if we're talking about high-performance teams, in sort of practical terms, what do people mean when they say, I want to sort of build this high-performing team? What goes into building that team? Cool. Well, I mean, we could touch on a lot of different topics at this point, you know, different areas. I think maybe what's interesting, especially since we probably... You know, my background team, people I coach are typically CEOs, founders, or CPOs, product leaders. So if we think about it within the context of a technology software product development team, then the key thing there is autonomy. We need the team to be empowered. We have to be an empowering leader. And being an, and that's not empowering us, that's empowering our, the people we're leading. And I think touched before on the key big three things that people struggle with. One of them was around fear of what teams are working on. So if we can have confidence in a team's focus, it's a really good starting place for the team to perform well. There are three things that typically make that in isolation. There's many other things I'm sure as well, but there are three big things that if they're there, we stand a good chance. There's They've been clear on what the big strategic bets are. What are the big things we think we need to be doing in order to achieve whatever our objectives and visions are? And really being clear with what they are, defining them, explaining them very in good clarity and prioritizing them. If a team knows what it's, what the big strategic bet is, what the big things are, the big items, it's easier for them to be empowered to come up with objectives that it, it's going to achieve, deliver to support that to help you move forwards. So the next thing is having 
great team objectives. And they're a two-way. So the strategic bet comes down the chain. Hierarchy, the leadership is going to say what they are. But the objectives, they come up and meet the strategic better, so to speak. So that's something that's more negotiable and involve, needs the engineers and the product people and the business and UX needs and the practitioners, the individual contributors who are closer to the actual problem space of the customer, understand the potential solutions far, far better. And of course, engineers are problem solvers. That's their job. They're empowering those guys to come up with clear objectives to support the strategic bets is really important. And then thirdly, is putting in place the right feedback meetings. Uh, what I mean by that is there are so many teams I watch where they've got some sort of weekly review meeting with leaders and everybody dreads it. They know that it's pointless. They're not getting any value out of it. And it's about making those meetings valuable, making them deeper than status meetings and creating the right feedback to inform decisions. And if you've got those three things in place, then as a leader, you can be very confident in the team's focus. You can be more confident in your own focus, which will help you with control of your time, because you can better plan where you need to spend your efforts. You can see which teams need your support, who needs your help, which topics are a problem, which blockers are in the way, and you can be far more effective to help them be performant. And obviously that be not just you, but then you know who can be better at delegating to, to ensure that those things get fixed. So it's not always yourself. Because as a as a rule, you try and be as you become a leader with more more responsibility, which typically means more headcount and more budget, you want to become less and less a cog in the workings, which is where the delegate it's important to be delegating because otherwise you can there's only one of you and that's that becomes problematic. I often hear that described by folks I respect as let me get out of the way of the team getting things done in the way they know they need to get them done. Yeah, I can't resist saying this because you've just raised it. As a takeaway for folks listening, what are a couple of things that they can focus on to run a healthy team meeting? Because I know this is something that, that you've shared a bit about yeah, sure. recently. Yeah, uh, yeah, thanks, Ollie. Yeah, I have a very prescribed way of doing it, which I've honed and become sort of my playbook to make sure I'm supporting people correctly and those meetings run smoothly. But uh, core basics, I like to start those meetings always in the same way. They typically, especially remotely, they typically start a bit slow. When you That's disappointing when you've got a lot of high-paid people in the room. You want to kind of get move faster. So launch control. We don't want slow starts. We want launch control like on some sort of Ferrari. So I like to start them what somebody taught me, which is a process called FOE, F-O-E. Uh, F star stands for focus, O for openness, and E for energy. And uh, go around the room where everybody scores, says what their score is out of five, five being the ultimate and one being disastrous for each thing. And that gives two, two benefits. One, you can start that process before everyone's arrived, because there's always somebody who's going to be late to a meeting. If nowadays with Zoom, you're always got somebody who's late because they're stuck in a previous meeting that's overrunning. And previously it would have been, you know, someone's running up the stairs from a meeting that was on a different floor or whatever it was. So that gives us a way to start the meeting on time. It doesn't matter too much if they, if somebody misses some of it and doesn't hear everybody's phone. It also gives us a way to get some ice breaking done to get us in the room. If somebody's energy is really low, somebody's going to ask why and what's up and that kind of thing. And that creates a supporting environment. And it may be that, especially when you've got a group of people that meet regularly like on a weekly basis like your own direct reports you start to bond obviously and you know they, they start to care about each other and it provides that supporting environment for, oh well, you're not normally low on energy what's wrong kind of thing and that's positive so that gets us into the meeting gets it started quickly and in a good way i think the key thing is for it not to be a status update depending wherever your agenda might be isn't helpful going around the room with people giving you status updates telling you how far through on something it is if your meeting's just status update, you may as well just put it in a email or Slack or whatever comms tool you prefer. I can read a status, a status update far better than I can sit listen to it. So what I want 
is to understand the exceptions and what help people need, what things they think they could do with help with and support. That's what's more useful. Or if there's anything they feel is going very much awry and they need the room to debate it, which again is support, but it's a slightly different way of asking for it. Instead of going around the room with pure status updates, we go around the room with what help do we need, what exceptions are there, and including going around the room with what's the what's the big achievements so that we're celebrating success together. Because celebrating success in a report isn't very interesting. Celebrating it together where we can see each other's faces and congratulate one another on whatever good work's been done is important. There's not enough celebrating of success in, in, in most organisations, and that it's really important we, we get that. Faux, we've got celebrating successes, we've got understanding how, other, how what help we need, and then obviously people committing to provide some help because they're normally in the room. Normally, we've got some shared resources in, in teams, you know, whether in the product development world, often analysts are shared resources or data scientists might can switch teams regularly because of their needs or UX. I see a lot of teams where there isn't UX in every team. So that we have some shared resources that will bounce between teams. There's also worth having a part of the meeting to just plan where we believe those resources should be. Should they stay where they are now or do they need to move? It's useful to do after the exceptions or and help I need. So together that gives provides the right, all the information you need as a leader because it gives you exactly the information you need of where to go help. It brings the team together to support and if you weren't there, busy organisations with many activities going on, there's often times where you won't be there. In previous roles, M&A, for example, when mergers and acquisitions were going on, as a C-suite member, you'd be very busy with some other stuff, often stuff you couldn't tell anybody about as well. You'd have to excuse yourself from some of those meetings. That's That process allows the team to still be functional and support each other in your absence, which is also pretty important. Yeah, that's a big one. I often feel like I can't be in enough places. And I was reading the other day something that you wrote about product leaders particularly needing to take control back of product management and that really being take control back of their diaries, right? Because there's just not enough time to be in all places we want to be. Yeah, having control of your time is super important. That starts with planning. It's not planning what your teams are doing, it's planning you, what's priority to you. I've always, when I've been in those roles, I've always had a roadmap for my team, a roadmap for what I'm trying to do to improve how we function. How are we improving and getting better at being a product organization? And I'd have a roadmap, not necessarily share with people that much, but that drives my priorities. What are the key things I've got to focus on? And with that, that then helps you very quickly, just like any roadmap, helps you decide what to say no to quickly. And so you can confidently know you're pulling yourself, not taking yourself out of the, uh, off the field for the right things and making sure you're on the field when needed. And then delegating is the other one. And then finally, basic time management. Although it's amazing how very competent and well-practiced leaders at time of stress forget basic time management that they've probably coached their staff on many times over and forget it themselves really quickly. It's phenomenal. It's uh, when you're under strain, the easy things are the obvious and the well-practiced things are quite easy to forget. I mean, it's a bit like when I exercise with my PT and it pushes you and pushes you to a strain level and you somehow you forget to breathe. And how have you forgotten to breathe? That's crazy. You know, you do it without thinking, but somehow, you end up holding your breath for an exercise and then absolutely exhausted at the end of some period because you've not been breathing properly. It's exactly the same with time management. That's the one thing leaders forget, like somebody straining an exercise, forgetting to breathe. So when it comes to founders and exit, normally the question is, what advice can you give that would sort of empower these leaders? I'm probably not asking it the right way. <laughs> <laughs> that's all right that's all right yeah. so for founders and leaders yeah when it comes to exit yeah cool so i think there is there's two different things about building an organization to build a healthy business with good profit and building an organization to sell for a healthy amount 
they're not they can be the same thing obviously but they're not always and the big difference is you know anybody who's been in startup i'm sure has heard the word multiplier at some point and when you're thinking about strategy to sell an organization to build a business to sell you've got to focus a lot more as a leader on the multiplier is it's not purely just the profit so that multi what strategically would grow the multiplier is really important you know when we talked about tez really early on in the conversation when i was there my big focus in that organization was to move us to subscription revenue instead of transaction revenue and to demonstrate a clear pipeline of new products that was going to drive increased revenue and international expansion and those goals whilst subscription clearly increases multiplier international expansion doesn't have to be fully realized it has to be demonstrated that the organization has the capability in that example and it's the same in all exits you're demonstrating you've got certain areas like subscription that will reduce risk and therefore increase multiplier because it reduces risk having business revenue coming in on a regular basis That's and what why. do you mean by multiplier so multiplier if we think about enterprise value which is what you're selling the company for what the enterprise value is multiplier is typically private equity or vc or strategic buyer will retake some form of formula that they've got which normally will take revenue or profit and times it by a particular number that they've decided is the right number to value your organization and that's the multiplier a very standard sort of typical multiplier would be a take profit and times it by six and that's the value of the business where the strategic where the business and the founders have been very strategic and spotted really high valuable opportunities a multiplier can be far bigger it can be work with some businesses that have sold at 20x and that then you know clearly if i'm making the same profit and i sell it at 20x the profit then the exit is going to be far higher than if i sell it at 6x and to get that multiplier up is all about reducing risk of continued growth and demonstrating high high growth potential and aligning to really big exits aligning to the strategic goals of a buyer uh, so that they when they acquire your business into their ecosystem it's worth it way more than it was before they acquired it the for the founder and leader they've got to be really clear with their organization of where they're going with what the direction is and what the exit strategy is often doesn't get discussed enough often it gets hidden i'm not sure if i'm answering the right yeah, question to I'll, be honest yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um it was just along the lines with with sort of the product leaders and and taking control of product management right and the importance of the role in in that sort of process i'd say right i mean in that sense simpler way it's about the product leader making sure that to achieve product-led growth is demonstrating a pipeline of products a pipeline of how the product is going to grow in its revenue. And that, you know, that's really much, very much looking at, can we develop new products that will drive upsell or cross sell, or are we able to take our current capabilities and put them into a new market? Or can we take our, create new capabilities for our existing market? Very rarely, it'll be the fourth option, which is let's look at a new market and new capabilities. But that's probably safe for larger organizations rather than founder-led startups where they're looking to really innovate and pivot for the next creating potential futures for the next 10 years a bit like nokia uh, turning from i believe it was once a wood mill paper type of business into a electronics business wow that's a pivot and a half okay so you as i understand it you're originally an engineer right and I say that in a loaded way because of the, the humor between the, and the banter between engineering and product. However, it seems to me there's a lot we can learn from the way that engineering organizations across the world, both in physical engineering and now in software engineering, attract people, incentivize them, retain them, and coach them. Do you feel that's the case? Have you observed that going from engineering to product to exec coaching? Yeah, I think it's really interesting that I've seen some orgs where there is this 
challenge between engineering product like you're referring to where there's that struggle and conflict and there should be always at some level a high level some healthy conflict between the two and i think it's engineers are problem solvers that's what they're good at and where i see it work the very very best is where product aren't trying to bring the solution to the table instead product are bringing the problem and the, a great deal of definition around the problem and learning around the problem and validation about the problem but they're bringing the problem to the table so that the engineers can solve the problem and then they're validating and ensuring that the solution is a fit and where it breaks is where the product where somebody in product is bringing the solution not the problem and sometimes that's because higher level leadership are bringing solutions to product and not letting them focus on the problem and other times it's because it's actually a lot easier to work in the solution space than the problem space for a lot of people it's a lot easier to dive into the thinking how we might fix it so that conflict typically dissolves very quickly that we're really great teams when engineers are empowered to solve the problem rather than being given the solution and i think agile has a lot to do with this problem agile has caused this if we think of like the true sort of 2003-esque scrum which is still what lots of organizations are following with a product owner who orders what we want to build what we want to work on prioritizes that rather than prioritizing problems that we want to solve they pro which is really what it was meant to be instead the user story became more of a solution rather than a problem then we end up with this process where we're spoon feeding engineers and product are feeling like they've got to feed the dev monster instead of product of finding the best problems to solve that are most valuable to the business and customer and engineers are doing what they're amazing at and you know if you listen people like marty kagan marty will talk about you know that if engineers aren't being given the space to problem solve and other people are trying to bring the solution to the table you're only getting 50 percent of the value of the engineer and given that they're the most expensive part of the business not be necessarily because of individual head cost but because you've got more of them typically you've got one to five one to seven engine product manager to engineers that's an expensive investment and if you're only getting 50 percent of that value out of them then your leadership's failing massively yeah do you think we could take that and draw a parallel between the product manager and the engineering team in this case and apply that from leader to team member as well in terms of bring me problems that I need to solve in the form of organizational goals. Don't bring me solutions and then tell me to just execute. Yeah, 100%. Earlier I mentioned strategic bets where leadership should be directing on the strategic bet and talking with the engine, with the teams to regards what the team objective is. Today's sort of trend would be OKRs, but I was trying not to necessarily say that, but that's how people would describe it today if you bring the strategic a good strategic bet is a description of not of the exact solution but the problem area we want to solve or even sometimes it is solution orientated but it's not talking about the how if i was to compare to try and make it more sort of almost um, maybe a, a loose metaphor if i'm trying if the objective is i want to lose weight then a strategic bet to do that might be to do cardio exercise Another strategic bet to do that might be to control my calorie intake, i.e. watch what I eat. How you do those two things, there are masses of options and anybody who's tried to lose weight must have seen them. You know, does that mean I spend, like, do I learn to jog? Do I go jogging? Do I ride a bike? Do I row? Do I lift weights? Do I do all three? Do I do circuit training? How do I do this? What is that? There's a bunch of potential solutions to achieve that goal. Uh, and same with food, you know, do I fast do i go on a low carb high protein diet there's a bunch of options there too so if the strategic bet is well thought through worded in such a way that provides doesn't take the solution but defines the space it's in which is very right it probably should so in other words providing some guardrails and as long as those guardrails aren't too narrow then we've got 
the right kind of support from leadership to empower the teams and empower engineers to do the amazing work that they can do. Well said. Okay, so what about the product leader map that you've developed? I think it's well worth plugging that and explaining that to folks because they will probably see that when they go to look you up after the show. Definitely, Ollie. Thank you for that. You're right. They will definitely find it. I'm going to have to just go and find it myself. Otherwise, I'll uh, say the wrong things on it. The key to the product leader map is the trio, which is the center of it. So there's three circles for people that haven't seen it. It's a Venn diagram with three circles, just like the kind of Venn diagram I'm sure every product manager has seen and obsessed over in the past. And that the three used to be for a product manager, it used to be I would focus on design or usability, business or feasibility, and well, viability more so, and technology feasibility, can we build it? And product has always been at the center of those three circles. As a product leader, though, that's no longer your world. You're not a product manager anymore. Uh, you've got product managers working for you. And your world is very different. For you to be a great leader of those people, you need to obsess around the products in general, culture, and team. And probably if we think about those three areas, you want a team that's empowered, that's cross-functional and capable. You want products deliver value to customers, deliver value to the business and are sustainable. And you want a culture that's supportive, that can do and a positive place to be. So as a product leader, you exist at the center of those three problems, trying to ensure uh, make that happen. The center, of course, if we want to put a label on it, it would be product-led growth. On the product leader map, I've, there are nine topics, three for each of the trio I just mentioned. Probably not worth going through all nine right now. But, um, but if you go look it up, you'll see each one. Um, and the key to use the product leader map and why I created it is to help product leaders by evaluating where you are in your business on each of those areas, the nine, and picking one for each big bubble. So one, one for team, one for culture, and one for products. Picking one for each bubble where you feel most need to improve. And that will give you three key focuses for you to work on in each area. And it's important to work on one from each area at once, because otherwise it's very unbalanced. You want to be work, thinking about all three at the same time, working on them. As a leader, you've got to, you can't ignore, you can't just focus on team constantly and because culture is going to suffer and so will the products. So you've got to think of all three at once. But by picking three out of the nine of the map, and you can find the map on Mind the Product. They probably wrote an article on Mind the Product recently and published it there. It's quite a detailed article, so uh, it'd be, that's a, probably a good place to go look. But if you pick the three that are most important for you, that then sets you a good in good stead, really probably a 90-day plan for you to prioritise. What are you going to do as a leader to drive each area up over the next 90 days? And then in 90 days' time, review the situation again and you know, rinse and repeat. Find the next best three things for you to focus on. They might be the same, but hopefully not. Hopefully you've made some really good progress and delivered some, made some impact on Thank you. Jonathan, as obviously this is currently two product people talking about product. So from a service delivery perspective, when you're listening to this, what parallels are you drawing to this, the things you see needed in your team and, and what you've experienced? I think, I mean, from overall, I think the whole coaching element, I think is quite important. And just knowing when to sort of with training when to sort of disconnect and, and stop trying to become the cog and kind of help your team run a lot more efficiently without you <laughs> having to try and pick up that role and also try and be strategic at the same time 
delegation is one of the key parallels I, I get because if I'm sort of managing the support team as well and, and I have the answers, I think empowering my team to, to one, find those answers and think through the solutions themselves is really useful and does really work in practice, obviously. <laughs> but yeah, there's a part in training, there's like a transition point in training where I tend to really just ask a question back. So, and it sort of takes them back a bit, just slightly, where it's like, what would you do? What do you think we should do at this point? And just help them sort of come up with a solution. That's really effective, um, especially for things that they possibly haven't necessarily seen before, but can have got all the resources and the knowledge to resolve it themselves. I think I've taken that sort of piece from it. I, th I think it's, yeah, it's really important. And, and again, it's always good when dealing person to person to know when you should sort of either switch that on or just focus on different elements, um, as you said, only early, but earlier Ollie. Oh, <laughs> I'm happy to be an early Ollie as well. <laughs> yeah. So I think, well, on that note, really to sum it all up, I think we went through the sort of the model, but is there any other, is there any sort of all encompassing points that we can all focus on it look when we um, look to coach our teams? Yeah, I think when coaching our teams, when we're purposefully and meaningfully in a coaching mode, rather than supporting or tell, it's to remember that we're asking questions, we're not telling them how to do it. So asking questions, in that process to avoid using the question starting with why because why is a very judgmental creates judgment it creates an immediate judgmental sentiment so asking people questions around what and how in a coaching mode is far more valuable actively listening which uh, you know we must remember we've got two ears and one mouth let's listen hard and talk less in that instance, listen hard, ask those what and how questions based on the things people are saying to help them consider their options and then help them select an option that they think is best for them to go forwards, whatever they're trying to achieve. And a powerful tool for anybody coaching, a powerful tool is reflection, is to at some point during the conversation to say, hey, so what you're telling me, what I've heard you say is, X, Y, Z, whatever it might be. Um, and quite often just having somebody actually listen to you properly and then give you that reflection back of what you've just said, quite often that creates this aha moment and somebody goes, oh, I've solved my problem now. Now I've heard heard you say that back. It, um, it, it triggers some different thought patterns in the individual and helps them. And often all they needed was somebody to listen to get them to where they need to be reflection is really important that makes me think that a lot of the people in my teams today and and past would make awesome leaders because i often think they're better at listening than i am well i mean your job is to if that's what they want to become then your job is to help them become that and you'll yeah. be able to enjoy watching what amazing stuff they do when they are leaders indeed indeed and and perhaps without naming names um there's a situation in your past wasn't there where there was someone in your team who you actually encouraged to go and start their own gig. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's got to be a hard one, right? You've got one of your favourites, and I know we don't have favourites, but we do. <laughs> and yeah, uh, I mean, we do. And if you, uh, in fact, if you look at the Gallup, uh, the organisation, quite a few years ago now, uh, wrote a book after some huge research, like twenty odd years of research of. Um, rules you should break and one of the rules they recommended breaking with some good research on why was having favorites which is which is quite interesting but uh, i had a really great team and a particular product manager and she was awesome and she had this side gig where she was building this thing out just for us to use really and it became apparent that she really should quit a job and go and make this a full-time thing um uh, and i I can re vividly remember on the tube going somewhere to a client meeting, suggesting to her, this is what you should do, you know, and, and she did. And, uh, it's a, she's been phenomenally successful, which I'm, you know, she's 
very clever and hardworking, which is why it was a shame to lose her. But um, she has been fantastic and built an amazing business and a product which I've used since and paid for and recommended to other people. Yeah, yeah. And if we take the, the idea of supporting, fostering, coaching, um, leading and wrap it all up, of course, there's a growth beyond where we are together today onto the things that you are going to do next as an individual tomorrow. Step, isn't there? Definitely, definitely. And sometimes they'll be aligned with the org and sometimes they'll mean the individual is going to stay in the business and work with you for a very long time. And uh, other times it's clear that they're not aligned. And I think it is important to recognize when they're not aligned and you know to help that person on that journey because there's nothing more demoralizing and toxic to your company and team when there's somebody there who doesn't really want to be there because it's no longer the thing that they're passionate about and they know they could be doing better somewhere else but they haven't had the uh haven't been able to make that journey yet for whatever reason so you know that's about authenticity um and in that example and others in the past that's you know it's only been a positive thing and it's worked well for the organization because gives bring you know, when people have been there a while you get new blood and there's some new there's always a silver lining even if it feels very negative at the time it's always a silver lining not that i'm suggesting leaders go and tell their staff all to leave at all unique unusual but definitely real situation it would also be a good episode of the office wouldn't it <laughs> it would yeah <laughs> yeah brilliant thank you thank you jonathan feel free to move us on Yes, so we have made it to the sharing section. <laughs> so we usually go through this section to give our listeners a feel of what sort of books and films and or projects that have inspired you recently. So if we start off with books or films, what has inspired you most recently? Chris Foss's book. I reread it recently. I read it a while back and uh, it's called Never Split the Difference and it's a great book. Chris, his writing style is fantastic and the stories he has are amazing. He's had to deal with more high-pressured negotiation than anyone else I could imagine. He ran the negotiation department for the FBI. So his negotiations were life and death and in some cases pretty considerable stakes, you know. So he has what was interesting and why i raised his book so much and it's so inspiring not only is the processes he describes and shares to be able to negotiate very well really interesting and full of good integrity it's not like they're highly manipulative they're it's always about a win situation quite often so um you know which is a good thing in business we don't want you know we don't feel like we have to screw somebody over that's not what negotiation has to be about but equally, he describes quite a few times early on in the book how he was exposed to very sophisticated negotiators to educational institutes, specifically around law, where they had very they'd been trained in many clever and very, very sophisticated formulas to drive negotiation. And he had none of that background, none of that knowledge, and instead, the formulas he used and the very not complicated, pretty simple approaches had come through trial and error, through doing the job. And in the environment pitted against the very formulaic, carefully thought out processes, his one, hands down, and left people in a very stuck position and set him up for a win. And what was interesting and inspiring about that is when you actually look at, you could look at it in a different light that his approach was lean. It was pure trial and error, very fast iterative trial and error with big stakes, just like an organization wanting to survive and found the best ways and the ways that worked in a very lean, pragmatic way. You could look at the, how he did it and apply many of like tire production system processes to it almost if you wanted. I think that's super interesting, that pragmatic, that the pragmatic approach come up with a better solution, more valuable solution than a highly academic approach that was less real world. So yeah, I found that really inspiring. 
It's also really cool. <laughs> and the stories in the book are amazing. The stories yeah. in the book are amazing. So that moves us on to projects, projects or movements that you've been most excited by. Well, I think Te- Mashak Tez, I mean, T- Times Education Center, and Tez did some amazing, we're involved in some really great projects and stuff all around education. So phenomenally, I was phenomenally lucky to work in, in the ed tech space for a while. I think more recently, there's one area, one topic and movement I've seen that I really am inspired by, and it's a, uh, a thing called Made by Dyslexics. It's a uh, promoted, I'm not sure who ran, who promotes it, but it, I think it's government backed, I'm not sure, but uh, it's got all over LinkedIn, it's all over my LinkedIn feed, talking about all the different people who have been super successful who were dyslexic and how this learning difficulty doesn't have to stop people and helping people who are struggling with learning difficulties to not be, especially younger people, to not be uh, knocked back by it, not be, not let it stop them, not let it impact their ambition. You know, and you've got people like Orlando Bloom, Richard Branson, very, a huge number of people on this program who are trying to help people who struggle with these problems and let it impact both their mental health and their and let it stop prosperity and there's no reason that it should in fact could be viewed as a uh, as a secret weapon if you uh, think about it in a different light so I, I find i think that's really interesting that's awesome i can't believe we didn't have this question in the first couple of episodes jonathan because it's super inspiring and, <laughs> yeah. and that and that that idea of disability as superpower is really cool, isn't it? It reminds me of our episode on left-handed champ, where the author was attributing being left-handed, as a left-hander, I feel quite strongly about this, to being a superpower, particularly in this case when the little boy was playing sport because he's on his forehand and others are on their backhand, right? But it's just amazing to realize that behind the facade of success are real people, right? Yeah, that's awesome. What tech is improving your life? right now at the moment oh what tech's improving my life (laughs) i could talk about what tech isn't improving my life (laughs) Um, it has to be said that covid has driven us to all be more remote and there for some that won't be an improvement but for me it means a much better work-life balance you know not commuting spending a two or three hours a day stuck on you know stuck on uncomfortable trains is definitely an improvement without any doubt. I think there's an awful lot of tech around helping us be more being aware of ourselves. You know, my Apple Watch measuring teen different things about me, you know, that sort of biotech stuff and metrics. I think that's really interesting and makes me more aware of what I'm up to, what I'm eating, what I'm doing. And that's that's definitely really supportive in leading a healthier lifestyle. But the tech that probably has the biggest impact right now is none of those things, though. We the technology that goes into a mountain bike so that I can enjoy my sport. And the technology in mountain bikes keeps improving all the time with nothing, not chips so much, but more to do with suspension and stronger, lighter carbon and all that stuff. And that means I get to have more fun throwing myself down a hill. At the end of the day, I feel like a child doing that. It's a childlike fun. It's amazing. And I'd rather be doing that all day than anything else, to be honest. Yeah. Now, given that this is a safe place, you can tell us, do you have a battery on your bike? No, I don't. No, I don't. Have, have you looked at those folks and thought, yeah. gee, that does look easier, <laughs> powering up it's, the hill? I've got some friends who do, and it's great because they're enjoying the sport better. And I have some friends who've tried it. I haven't, but I have some friends who've tried an e-bike. And it was interesting. This They got to the top of some big climbs in Wales where they were trialing this bike. You know, and they're big hills. And they don't enjoy climbing, the, to be honest. They didn't think they did anyway. But it turned out that when they got to the top of the big hill without any effort, they realized that half the satisfaction was the pain to get to the top and that accomplishment. And without any accomplishment, it was a little bit, you know, yeah, they got the fun riding down the hill, but uh, they'd missed out on half of the, half the fun. So um, uh, I will definitely get an e-bike one day, but um, not yet. Mm. Fair play. Fair play to you. I think 
with technology, we often go all out, don't we? Smartphone all day, or I don't have a smartphone and belittle anyone who does, right? Or I'm on my bike and I'm struggling up the hill thinking about I probably shouldn't have had that extra liter of water because it would have saved the kilos. Or I'm powering up the hill on flat out battery until the battery stops and then I put it on a truck and go home. It seems to me that this real adoption moment when people realize that if the battery is on 5%, then they can just go 30% further on their ride, but still get all of the accomplishment. You know, that's the moment I'm kind of looking forward to. In, in yeah, I think it, it, yeah, it totally depends what it's all been used for. You know, I have some guys who use their, their technology as an e-bike just to get to the top of the hill because they can ride down it faster and all they care about is downhilling and they don't care about it. They prefer to get in a truck to drive them to the top and they're riding down really crazy, gnarly stuff. So it's great if it means people are enjoying, enjoying themselves more, the better. But it, it's really weird, like you say, how we're often extreme one end of the scale. It's, you know, your phone is a perfect example. I think it's just something that we're often very religious about this stuff and become obsessed with it or not until it becomes everything. It becomes sort of mainstream and normal. I don't mean mainstream by everybody using it, but I mean where it becomes part integrated into our lives rather than a focus of our, of our, our lives. Now, I know you want to ask your favourite question, Jonathan. Go for it. <laughs> Who do you most look up to in the world? That's a good question. I um, wish I'd read the questions beforehand so I could prepare a really good answer. To be fair, I didn't share that one with you, so you, you wouldn't have Oh, that's good it. then. <laughs> um, I, you I most look up to in the world, wow. I could ask another one. That's, no, that's I think it's a great oh. question. Let's go for it. You know, I'm awesome. going to give you an answer that's a bit bizarre. Well, your mum's um, also waiting, isn't she? So. Yeah, I'll give you an answer that's a little bit bizarre. I have a lot of role models. Anybody, I guess we all do. We have interesting people. But I'm going to say the singer of Iron Maiden. There you go. A guy called Bruce Dickinson. No way. And I'm going to say, one, I'm a crazy Iron Maiden fan. And it was the first record I bought in 1988 as a 12-year-old. So I'm a lifelong fan. So that's one thing. But more interestingly, the guy was the singer for a massive band in the 80s. He's continuing, he's still the singer for a massive band, the same band, and having great fun doing so, even though he's in his 60s or however old he is now. So that's one thing I want to, when I'm that old, I want to be doing things I love. That's cool. But in the middle, he managed to become, he loved fencing and became, learnt to fence and fenced for Britain at a very, you know, at the top level. He also learnt to fly, became a pilot for British Airways an airplane company that provides supply planes. Basically, if your plane breaks, he provide, his company provides a jumbo jet. So that's really interesting. He's been able to make a career doing all the stuff he really enjoys. He hasn't harmed anybody on the way. He's only given people, you know, he's given loads of people pleasure in help them in, in his own way and stood for various things on the journey. I mean, in the middle there when he was not a member of the band when he left parted with them briefly he went to sarajevo amongst against a lot of recommendations during whilst it was war-torn and gave a very small concert to people that needed uh, you know uplifting no big press not doing it publicity hardly anybody even knew at the time it was happening other than the people in sarajevo and for good reason, because it was a huge security nightmare and did it in, uh, at risk to his own well-being. Somebody who can help people in their way, the way they're able to, and make a living and be at the top of their game doing stuff they enjoy. Yeah, that's got to be something worth looking up to. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I was about to... <laughs> what a guy. What a legend. It. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa. It also happens to be the T-shirt that I imagine when I think of kids at high school and when I think of their those sort of hessian sack type bags they used to have and they used to <laughs> yeah. write Iron Maiden on it with a black pen. That's yeah. the one, yeah. And then funnily enough, I, I listened to a bit of Iron Maiden a few years back and I thought, 
where's the heavy in this metal? <laughs> because, yeah, exactly. Because yeah. things are a lot heavier now. <laughs> they are, yeah, yeah. All right, now my turn. Last question for you before we move on to how folks can get in touch with you. What's the one thing that comes to top of mind as something you would change in the world if you could? What would I change in the world? I mean, there's the obvious things that are not really very possible. We all would like no illness and people not in pain and violence and all the rest. They're not very feasible, though, because humans are humans. The practical answer, Jonathan. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I would love to make it where career politicians were illegal. I think if you go into politics in, and you end up as a career politician, you have a conflict of interest. So if politicians could only be politicians for, say, eight years, then you couldn't have a conflict of interest anymore. And therefore, you would be in it for the reasons you probably got into it in the beginning before you ended up in the high position of power. And therefore, the people in power be doing things for the right reasons rather than to win the vote for the next time round. Yeah. Yeah, I strangely agree. <laughs> well, interestingly, here, you, you can learn a lot from related areas, can't you? And fascinates me that, that town councils and parishes, particularly in France, but also in England, operate quite differently and that people tend to come in, do their thing and then leave. And that model seems to work really well, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. there you go. All right. So how about getting in touch with you? How would people go about doing that? I'm easy to find on LinkedIn. It's Dave Martin and just connect with me. I'm on Twitter as product underscore Dave, although I don't jump on Twitter that much anymore, but I am there. So if you reach out to me, I am there. Or just go to righttoleft.io, my website, my company's website, and there's definitely a contact button there somewhere. Beautiful. Did you have anything else you wanted to say, Jonathan? Anything else to cover? No, I just wanted to really thank Dave for coming on the show. And we'll add a lot of the links and the links to the models in the show notes. And thank you again for, for coming on. Great. Thanks for having me. Beautiful. And that's it for another week, folks. So don't forget to subscribe. And we look forward to another one next time. <laughs>